everyone, and welcome to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 55, and I am Michael Bradley. First up, I want to offer my apologies for the lack of an episode last week. I posted messages on Facebook and Twitter, but in case you didn't see those, I had a guest lined up for this episode, but I ended up getting sick, and that delayed our scheduled recording. And then our schedules conflicted after that and to the point where we weren't able to record at all. So hopefully he'll be able to come on at some point down the road, but I wanted to get this episode out. So I fired up the signal watch and faster than a speeding bullet, this guy that I've got with me today responded. So it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the show, Mr. J. David Weeder. Thank you very much. And that signal watch is the most annoying thing on the planet. The high-pitched screaming, yeah. Z, 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 yeah, I get it. (laughs) Dave was on the show back in episode 28, where we looked at Superman number three and a couple issues of Action Comics. And now he's back for this episode, where we'll be looking at Superman number five, which has four brand new Superman stories in it. Um, David, last time you were here, you were hosting Superman Forever Radio and the, the SFR Daily Planet. But since then, you've had quite an overhaul in your podcasting efforts, so why don't you give us a rundown on the shows you host now and what you've been up to since you were last on the show. Uh, Yeah, I kind of switched a bunch of things around. Right now, I'm co-hosting Superman in the Bronze Age with Charlie Niemeyer, uh, which is, well, look at Superman in the Bronze Age. We don't bury the lead on that one. (laughs) Uh, Which runs, we were looking at the stories from roughly 1970 to right up till the crisis in 1986. And then I do Superman in the, or what am I saying? New 52 Adventures of Superman, which cover the current issues with John M. Wilson and Michael Kaiser, who got brought out of retirement. And then on the Marvel side of things, of course, I do Pad Smash and Incredible Hulk podcast, which looks at the Peter David era of the Incredible Hulk. And finally, with you, Mr. Bradley, and Mr. Jeffrey Taylor, I co-host Green Lantern's Light, which looks at the late Bronze Age, early post-crisis era of Green Lantern. Cool. And don't forget to shamelessly plug that because we just had a new episode out today. So, Yep, I've already put it on Facebook. So, <laughs> Cool. This is the voice of the randomizer. Do you hear me, Earthman? You gave me your numbers forced me to pick one. For that, you must face the consequences. Each week, I will make you review a random comic book. Do you hear me, Earthman? A random comic book. Yes, each week on the 20-minute long box, I submit myself to the powers of randomness and review a title from my collection completely at random and all within 20 minutes. It's the Super Compressed podcast for the decompressed, written-for-trade age. Join me, Steve Lacey, each week at 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com or find me on iTunes. You know, it's kind of odd. Here we are discussing Superman number five, and unless it's delayed for some reason, a, a brand new Superman number five will be coming out this week. And it's probably the only time that will ever happen, unless 
the show changes format or they get really, really behind on publishing at DC. But the Superman number five we'll be discussing this episode had a cover date of summer 1940, and this is the final quarterly issue of the book as it moves to a bi-monthly schedule after this. But it was released May 10th, 1940, for a price of 10 cents and 64 pages. Our cover is by Wayne Boring and Paul Loretta, and it shows Superman ripping a set of steel bars out of a brick building. And inside the building, we see a guy harassing a woman. What do you think about this cover, David? I actually liked it, and it almost fits with the first story we're going to look at in the book, which doesn't really happen that much in this era where you you actually have something related. Because that does look like Lois. I assume it to be Lois. It could be Lois. He doesn't really rip any steel bars off of windows, though, in the story. No, that's true. That's yeah. true. But as we'll find out, she she is captured, and he does kind of break her out. Yeah. Um, I like this cover, too. My only complaint is that the artwork just kind of stops. There's no detail behind the logo or on the left-hand side above where this guy with the hat is, you know? It's like they just kind of – they weren't quite finished, so they just slapped a logo on and went with it. Uh, kind of, but it does blend well with the yellow. Yeah. That kind of creates a cool effect. Yeah. Uh, there's also no DC bullet on the cover. While it's been appearing on most other DC titles around this time, it doesn't appear on the cover of Superman until issue number 11. So like I said, this issue has four new stories, and David's going to handle the first one. Yeah, the first one technically didn't have a title at the time, but it was retroactively retroactively given the title The Slot Machine Racket. And if you're wanting to actually read this, you can find it reprinted in the Superman Archives Volume 2, that would be the hardcover, or the Superman Chronicles Volume 3 trade paperback, which I wish they would speed up releasing those chronicles. Mm -hmm. Uh, This one was, of course, written by the Jerry Siegel with art by Joe Schuster, and it looks like inks by Wayne Boring or fill-ins. I'm not sure it doesn't specify. Um, And the story begins with Lois and Clark out and about in Metropolis where they come across a group of school-age boys spending their lunch money on slot machines inside what looks to be a general store. And Lois tries to tell the store owner that, you know, letting the boys throw away their money and gambling in this machine is wrong, but he basically kicks her and Clark out of the store. Outside, Clark is defending himself from Lois, who insists that he should have stood up to the shop owner, and one of the children, realizing that he's late for school, rushes out into the street right in the path of an oncoming truck. Clark, slightly disregarding his dual identity as Superman, dives out and rescues the boy, letting the truck pass over them, well, somewhat safely. And in order to protect his identity, Clark fakes fainting afterwards, so he and Lois go to a nearby soda shop to drink something to settle Clark's nerves. And they notice a slot machine there as well. Clark asks the soda shop owner, Mr. Jensen, why he has the machine, and we learn that Slug... Hold on, let me try that again. We learned that Slug Kelly's men put it there by force, basically racketeering. If he says anything, they're going to destroy his business. Lois and Clark decide to pay a visit to Slug and his men and demand that he removes the machines. So Slug locks them up in separate cells inside of his apparently sprawling hideout. And Slug tells Lois later that he'll let her go if she signs a paper declaring that George Taylor, editor of the Daily Planet, is his partner in the slot machine racket, and she is the go-between. But if she doesn't sign, Clark Kent dies. So Clark does, or Lois does sign it, and unseen, 
Clark changes to Superman and breaks out of his cell and through Slug's thugs. And while he's at it, he destroys the entire backstock of slot machines, throwing them out of the building. Slug, of course, hears the ruckus, and he and his men come in, where Superman destroys their machine guns by pointing them at each other, and then fakes being overtaken by nerve gas to have a little fun with them. The thugs start taking axes, clubs, and whatever they can find to Superman, but they don't even make a dent in him. So Superman gets up, and now the thugs try a fire extinguisher, and then fire itself, but they do actually manage to trick him into the vault, which is on fire. Superman retrieves the evidence against Slug from the vault, because all of his ledgers are in there, and he busts out of it, rescues Lois, and watches the hideout burn. Afterward, Lois is greeted by Clark Kent, who tells her that Superman guided him out and gave him the ledger books. But rival newspaper The Morning Pictorial runs the story that Taylor and Lane are in on the racketeering, so Lois explains that she was forced to sign it, and Clark memorizes all of the names and addresses in the ledgers where the slot machines are. And Superman begins paying a visit to all the stores with Slug's machines and smashing them up. The machines, not the stores. Meanwhile, Slug comes for Lois, and they run upon poor Mr. Jensen rolling the slot machine out the door as they're trying to get out of town. And Slug cannot resist. He stops to accost Jensen, and this gives Superman the perfect opportunity to capture Slug and his boys. But when he takes them to the police, they can't take him into custody without witnesses of the crime. So all of the children that have been deprived of their lunch money in these slot machines show up to provide that witness. So in the end, the connection between George, Lois, and Slug is disproved, and Superman warns against hold on. Superman warns against his readers throwing their money away into slot machines. Very cool. Uh, just so you know, I have a lot of notes on this. Uh, I, I have a few more. I have a few notes on it too. So. Okay, um, I have less on the the later stories. But uh, do you want to go first, or you want me to go first, or? Oh, go go ahead and go here. first. No, okay. you go ahead. Uh, my first note on this story was that I really liked the splash page, the splash panel on the first page. We see Superman kind of sailing above some buildings, and there's a couple of guys on the rooftop below. They look like they could be workmen of some type, and they're you know cheering them on. And there's a nice gradient through the sky, at least as best they could do with 1940s coloring. So I just thought that was really nice. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I like that when they keep it more general and not random sailboats that have nothing to do with the story. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but then we get to the bottom of the page, and I'm like... Yes, Lois. Clark should have punched him because violence is always the solution. Yeah, I have a note on that, too, because the shop owner's technically – Clark's right. The shop owner did have the right to kick him out. Right, yeah. Page two, we have a great rescue, very well drawn. Uh, sometimes they kind of skimp on these rescues and the, you know, and they, they come off not having any energy. But this one, I, I really like this one. Grabs the kid <laughs> from in front of the car or the truck, I guess it is. And then I also liked seeing Clark worry about his secret identity. There haven't been a whole lot of these types of comments to this point. I mean, there's been a few, but it's not its not a trope yet in the book. It's not a regular occurrence, you know, every story, like it will become. Uh, page three. Then we get to the next page here. <laughs> uh, Clark does this clumsy uh, fainting act. And, and I think this is the most obvious thing that we've seen him do to this point to maintain his identity. <laughs> I, I've talked before about him assuming an attitude of meekness or, or backing off something to keep his identity, but nothing this dramatic. No, it is a lot more over the top than what we 
what you would normally see in, in this era. Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of weird because here we have the radio show that just started up where Clark has a much stronger personality. And I thought that Siegel was picking up some of that a couple stories back, but here he seems to be going completely in the opposite direction. So I, I really don't know what he's... I mean, it's clear he's been picking up some stuff from the radio show, but his portrayal seems kind of scattered as far as Clark is concerned. Uh, but page four, I'm not sure how Lois knew where Slug's hideout was. Clark asks her, but they kind of gloss over it. But I, I do like how Lois just charges right in to confront him. It's it's very gutsy and, and very Lois. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, page, skipping ahead to page six, there's another reference to the morning pictorial, which we will get even more of later in the episode. And then I'm like, are you telling me that no one hears Superman busting the door down? I mean, I know he caught the door before it hit the floor, but smashing the door and, and busting it off its hinges is still going to make a pretty huge racket. Just a little bit, yeah. Um, page 8. All right, so I'm reading this page, and they hit Superman with machine gun fire. And, and there's nothing unusual about that. But then I start thinking about it, and first of all, Superman feigns unconsciousness just for the heck of it, because, you know, it's not like Lois is in danger or anything. <laughs> but then I keep reading, and these guys pull out axes and start attacking. And, and I don't think anything of that either, because we've seen people attack Superman with all sorts of weapons. But then the axe crumbles, and one of the guys says, what good is it to get him unconscious if we can't dispose of him afterward? And then it hits me, I'm like, oh my gosh, these guys were planning on dismembering his body and doing who knows what with the pieces. Yeah, that was something that was actually a note I had where okay. this just would not fly, you know, post-comic code authority. No, no, very much no. Because, I mean, I, they obviously thought the Axes were going to do something to Superman, and it's just, these guys are twisted. But, yes. uh Pages 9 and 10, I loved the scene where the thugs steal themselves in that steel-lined room, and then Superman's just pounding away, breaking in, and and all of a sudden the horror hits them that they're trapped. It's like, <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> um, at the bottom of page 10 and on to 11, another great series of panels with Superman rescuing Lois and, and kicking the door down with Lois in his arms. And what I love is, at one point, that would have been the end of the story. You know, Lois is saved. Superman probably would have done away with Slug by throwing him out the window or something. But Siegel's getting more layered with his writing and that even though... The threat from Slug is, for all intents and purposes, nullified. They, they've still got to deal with the issue of the article against Taylor. And I just love that we're getting more depth to the story. I don't know if depth is the right word. It's complexity, it is. And yeah. it's, it's just in this short story, relatively short 13 pages, we get more than what we would normally get in a, an average 22-page issue today. Yeah, oh, definitely, yeah. Yo, yeah. Uh, page 11, this is the first reference to Superman's photographic memory, or that he has any kind of enhanced memory at all, super memory, if you will. So I thought that was very cool. And then on page 13, we get another first, as this is the first time that Superman has broken the fourth wall in a story. Of course, I guess this is kind of after a story, but still. <laughs> hey, kids, don't gamble. Right. I urge all of my readers not not to throw their money away wastefully into slot machines. Instead, uses them by Superman comics. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but I thought I thought the art in the story was pretty good. There's there's several great shots of Superman and some some good action sequences. 
you can definitely notice an art shift. Um, let me see. Let me scroll back up here in my notes. Because I had different credits than you gave. Per the Grand Comics database, Paul Cassidy did the art on the first half of the story and Wayne Boring and Paul Loretta on the second half. But Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics credits Joe Schuster and Wayne Boring as the artists. So I'm not... But I, there, there is a definite art shift partway through the story. Yeah. So... I just don't... It, it, it's not consistent. It's not a shift where it, th- at these pages it suddenly goes one way where previously it was another. I can see yeah. tra- traces of both within the pages, so I don't know... As I mentioned, I don't know who did exactly what. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> to be fair, I don't think anybody knows who did exactly what on, on a lot of these stories. But True. Um, I like the little embellishments they're putting on the, the big narrative boxes in the last part of the story. When the text only took up, like, say, half the box, they would put a little S-shield to fill up the rest of it. And it's kind of neat seeing the shield decorate the pages. That was kind of a note I had that it was stylistically... You know, appealing. I mean, yeah. oh, no, it just looks cool, I guess, is the best way to say it. <laughs> yeah. Um, on a costume note, the S on Superman's cape is yellow on a blue field, this story. But overall, I thought it was a fun story. Very, very typical type of problem for this era of Superman as a social crusader. Very much so. And, yeah, you know, I, my notes, if you're ready... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. I started on page two as well uh, in that I like that Clark actually disregards his secret identity to some extent because he has to save the kid. Right. He's like, I may blow this, but I can't just let that kid get run down. Yeah. And I think it's hilarious that he asks he, he asks the kid if he's scared as the truck is literally passing over them. They're between the tires. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just a little bit. And as Clark's about to get hit in the head by the gas... The gas yes. tank. Mm-hmm. That could have ended badly. Um, like you, I like that he – I think his freak out that he, he starts realizing, oh, I actually risked my life on page three. I actually thought that was hilarious, and, and I, I didn't think about it not being a trope in this time because I am used to later versions. Right. So that was actually – I laughed, and it was just – that was kind of part of the charm of the stories that things did go a little bit over the top. And on page four – I hate to go to catch a predator on this scene where Lois goes to meet Slug, but I have to ask, what did you expect to happen here? Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, kind of continuing that thought on page five, she looks at Clark and says, do something. So you you took the guy that you were deriding for being a coward, who somebody who has fainted at the thought of doing anything heroic. That's your backup? <laughs> And why doesn't why didn't they just call George Taylor and say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna go visit Slug"? Oh, probably because he would talk him out of it. But <laughs> wouldn't if you're gonna go visit a criminal in a secret hideout that nobody should know about? Wouldn't you call in to check in just to make sure? Yeah, t- tell somebody what you're doing. Yeah, you'd think so. Yeah, I don't make a habit of doing that, so I don't know what the protocol is. <laughs> um, on page seven or page six, panel seven. Um, after that caption where I, I had the note that I liked the little S symbols, um, kind of a, a comment on the art is I think this is kind of where Wayne Boring kind of put a little bit more meat behind the Man of Steel as far as his, his physicality. I'm sorry. Which is page he, are you on? I'm on page six in panel seven as he's about to bust out of his room. Oh, OK. He's just – he's thick. I mean you could actually buy this physique versus versus like the Ed McGinnis over-the-top version. Yes. 
this is a very real physique and yes, you could definitely. buy that this guy could knock down a door and I, I really ended up liking that a lot mm-hmm. um, I also like on page 7 in panel 4 where he makes the handball reference <laughs> as he's top, popping the bullets back at them Right. I really miss Superman's little quips with, with a sense of humor yeah and we don't you know, in the current books in the new 52, you don't really get that much of it. A little bit in action, but not in the current Superman. So <laughs> I don't, you know, when issue five hits later this week, I don't expect him to make smart remarks because he's kind of, right. kind of kind of a downer, if you want to be honest even, about it. Even before Flashpoint, there weren't a lot of that. No, you got it in, in here, in really thick in the burn era, the very early parts. <laughs> right. And then it started to become a little bit more serious and somber around the early you know around 2002 2003 2004 somewhere in there it it really took a a nosedive yeah and (laughs) i do miss this because i'm willing to forgive certain plot overlooks plot holes if i'm having fun reading it right yes and another fun thing is overall on page 12 it's funny that Slug was taken down because he couldn't resist the temptation to stop and, and you know, take Jensen out <laughs> because it's kind of like an addiction, like a gambling addiction. Uh-huh. And I guess it – I don't think it was intentional, but it does kind of parallel that. And the big question I have though, the you know, as I mentioned, I can ignore plot holes, but this is kind of a big one. On page 13, where did the kids come from? How did they know that, that Slug was being taken in so they can come in and be a witness to their, his crimes? That's a good point, because he takes – he grabs the guy, and they go straight to the police station. I mean, it says shortly after, but I can't imagine Superman would have stopped and picked up the kids. Not really, no. It says hundreds of school children. Hmm. That's very, that's very good. I didn't even catch that, but that's a good point. I didn't catch it the first time through, and suddenly I was about to – I went back a little bit, you know, looking a little bit closer at it. I'm like, wait, um, did I miss a panel or – That'd been a cool sequence, though, to have Superman, you know, with uh, what's his name, Jensen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, have Jensen in his hand and, and go to the kids and say, "This is the guy that's you're you're, th- you're throwing over your money for him," and then leading them all to the police. That would have been a cool. Hey, I mean, they were out of pages at this point, but yeah, must have, I, I just I'll chalk it up to a space issue. Yeah. But that overall, I had fun reading this story. I know slot machines aren't you know giant robots tearing up the city, but. <laughs> You still – this was an era where you, you were dealing with you know social crusade as you mentioned and you have right. gangsters and racketeers and that was you know kind of Batman-ish really. Yeah. yeah. I well, mean at this time – a social crusader. Yeah. So. And, and at this time you really couldn't tell that much difference between Metropolis and Gotham. No. Gotham hasn't even been named at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so. Batman has yet to throw his first person off a building. <laughs> Oh no, he was Batman was around. They just hadn't named Gotham City yet. They just called it the city. Yes, um, a or couple stories they called it. it. A couple stories they called it New York, New York um, but it hadn't been named Gotham City yet. Interesting. So, yeah. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Batgirl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Batgirl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. 
The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at BatgirlToOracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. All right, so our second story was, of course, untitled at publication, but later called Campaign Against the Planet. It was written by Jerry Siegel with art by Paul Cassidy, and the entire issue here was edited by Whitney Ellsworth. And my synopsis for this one is a little longer than normal, so just hang in there. As our story opens, corrupt politician and all-around bad guy Alex Evil pays a visit to Zachary Collum, publisher of the Morning Pictorial, and gives a lowball offer to buy the paper. Column shoots him down and starts to throw him out, but Evil says he will sell, or, well, accidents do happen, and it would be unfortunate if one were to happen to Column's family. Sometime later, a representative Barnes blasts Evil at a city council meeting, but soon finds himself denounced as a liar in the pages of the pictorial. Evil is visited by a wide array of criminals, and articles in the pictorial soon afterward attack the police methods and call for an overhaul. Clark Kent writes an article for the Daily Planet rebutting the lie spread by the pictorial, and soon Daily Planet publisher Burt Mason is visited by Evil. Evil tells Mason to stop printing the articles, then offers to buy the planet, but is tossed out on his, on his ear. And, as any good villain would do, he swears revenge. Sometime later, Clark is about to leave for vacation as a reward for his work on the story, when a call comes in that the Daily Planet delivery truck has been set on fire, and Clark and Lois go to investigate. After being threatened at the scene of the burning truck by one of Evil's thugs, they return to the planet, and Taylor tells Lois that the war between the papers means it's too dangerous for her to cover, but orders Clark to get out there and get some red-hot news. Slipping away, Clark says the planet is too conservative to fight back against the thugs, which means defending the paper is a job for Superman. Superman heads out and confronts the line of pictorial trucks that are blocking the planet trucks from making their rounds. Superman makes quick work of the hoods and their trucks, and then takes off on a run after one of the planet trucks that has been hijacked. Superman grabs the truck, springs high into the air to the roof of the nearby factory, and plants the truck atop a smokestack. Meanwhile, across town, several groups of thugs are harassing newsboys. Superman catches up to them and proceeds to start tossing them around to teach them not to bully children. We then cut to a mile away where a morning pictorial truck forces a Daily Planet truck over the side of a cliff. Superman sees what's happening thanks to his telescopic vision and, following a burst of super speed, is able to jump off the cliff, catch the truck, fling it back into the air, somersault, rocket into the air, catch the truck again, and set it safely back on the road. At a nearby store, a thug is harassing the shopkeeper for selling the Daily Planet. After tossing him around with some mid-air acrobatics, Superman throws the thug through the window of the morning pictorial, straight onto Evil's desk, then hangs around outside to eavesdrop on their conversation. 
Evil sees Superman's fingers on the window and smashes them with an axe. While the attack only damages the axe, it does force Superman to leap to the top of the roof and then shimmy back down the building to eavesdrop again. In order to do away with Superman, Evil hatches a plan and calls Lois Lane, pretending to be a hospital official and saying Clark is badly injured and she must come right away. But when Lois reaches the hospital, she's forced into a waiting car by one of Evil's thugs. Superman follows, unbeknownst to the thugs, by grabbing hold of the car's undercarriage and going along for the ride. When they arrive at the destination, Superman tries to bust in, but is hit by a round of machine gun fire from the thugs as Evil forces Lois into the next room and starts a fire, fully intent on taking out both Superman and his thugs. Superman continues to shrug off gunfire, knocking out the thugs and then charging through the flames, just in time to see Evil and Lois speeding away in a car. Superman runs back into the building, rescuing the two thugs from the inferno, and then chases down Evil's car. Leaping in front of the speeding auto, Superman braces himself and brings the car to a screeching halt. After kicking the tires off the car, Superman yanks Evil from the cabin and demands that he confess. When Evil refuses, his thugs step up and say that they will be glad to talk as a little payback for Evil trying to burn them alive. After dropping Evil and his thugs off at the police station later, Clark returns to the Daily Planet to see about the vacation promised him. But Taylor tells him that now that Colum has the pictorial back, he's giving them some stiff competition, and that there's no time for a vacation because the Daily Planet needs their top reporter. The end. The Daily Planet never sleeps. Right. <laughs> So what did you have on this one? I had very few page-by-page notes because I, well, I have more to say about the story overall. But, I mean, starting with page – I did have one on page one. His name is Evil. No red <laughs> flags went up. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. right there. <laughs> um, I did like that column actually – they played him as if he does have integrity. You know, I'm not yeah. going to sell the paper. And of course, you know, when his family is threatened, what do you, what is he going to do? And on page two, the one of the only other page by page notes, I like the Baron Munchausen reference. Oh yeah, because that's you know he was known for telling tall tales. I knew mm-hmm. him from the Joel Schumacher movie from the mid to late eighties. But yeah, it, it, he basically just told tall tales, so that's exactly what they're saying. I'm like, wow, that was a really really well done reference. Mm-hmm. But as a story overall, this thing was so dense and so much going on that about midway through, I had to stop, go back and reread. And I don't say that necessarily as a complaint, but, you know, it was thick and it was fun, though, because you have all this intrigue. You know, everybody's assaulting the planet. You have evil with his hands in the political field. And plus, you have a scene where Superman damages an axe. (laughs) Right. And they don't try to cut him up this time, though. So true, but it 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 may have become more convoluted to other readers, to younger readers. So I don't know that they were aiming for their target market with this one. You think it might have come become too dense for the age? Make is that what you're saying? Possibly, okay. very much, because like I, I mentioned, halfway that. through, I had to go back and put all the pieces back together. Yeah. So if you're doing a casual read, this one's probably not the story as your as your uh, synopsis would indicate. Yeah. But that was kind of my only real note on the story because it was generally enjoyable, just kind of a rougher read that I would prefer. Okay. 
Um, I really didn't have too many page-by-page notes either. Um, the splash panel here actually ties into the story for once. At least I assume it does, because we see Superman tossing a delivery truck, which he does a lot of in the story. Like you, I liked that Siegel had evil threaten Column into selling the paper, rather than just making Column in league with evil from the beginning, or, or just making evil the publisher of the paper. I, it was more subtle than we see in a lot of Golden Age stories. Uh, speaking of names, though, did you see the names of the, uh, the, the authors of the articles on page two? Peter Fibb, yeah. And I, I am Lion. Lion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so here we have Column, the newspaper publisher, Evil, the bad guy. Siegel wasn't really subtle with his names in this story at all. No. <laughs> uh, but this does mark the first appearance of Burt Mason, the Daily Planet's publisher. This is also the first time we've seen any of the staff of the pictorial. I'm not sure if any of them return, but Mason, we will see him again. Uh, page three, and I'm surprised you didn't you didn't notice this, David. Um, this guy sets the truck on fire and then just sticks around to watch it burn. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I'm just gonna stand here and wait to eventually get arrested. Right. Uh, but then Lois is all in Clark's face here. Not that that's anything new, but then Taylor Taylor tells her it's too dangerous for her to go cover the story, despite the fact that she's been to war zones, and she doesn't say anything. Well, yeah. she uh, she's not threatened by Clark because <laughs> she's under the impression that even she could beat Clark up. Yeah, yeah, good point. Uh, but then the rest of the story is just for the most part, you know, Superman tearing it up, leaping from one feet to the next. I got a big kick out of that. I mean, there's it's a dense story. There's just not a lot of plot. Um, but at the end of the day, you know. Superman throwing trucks around. That's why kids plunk down their dime for the book, is to see that and then him beating up the crooks. I could see that. It's just the background. That first, yeah, first yeah. portion is going back. Like, what is evil doing? Wait, why? <laughs> right. Yeah. The last couple panels on the last page kind of ends the story on a humorous note, and all it really needed is a thought balloon from Clark saying, "And there will be more news." Thanks to Superman. And then the Sammy Timberg music swelling up. So that was kind of cool. Um, I thought the art to the story was pretty decent. There's a lot of panels that could use more background detail, but that's really nothing new. Uh, in a lot of these stories, they kind of skimped on that. I like pretty much all of page 12. We see Superman shrugging off gunfire and then knocking some crooks together and charging into the flames after Lois and then chasing after the crooks that abducted her. It's, it's a very action-heavy page and a lot of action in the whole story, really, but this page was, was really good. I do want to note that they've started using more vertical caption boxes. They'll, they'll basically split a panel in half, basically, and use the left hand or left half of the caption and then the right half for the actual artwork. And occasionally when they do that, they they'll use a little S shield again, like I talked about last story. So it's really nice seeing that kind of peppered through the story. It, it gives the pages a little more flair, I guess might be one word to, to use. What's a good word. Uh, but overall a really fun story. Like I said, it, um, I like this one quite a bit. It, it was very dense, but at the same time, there's not a lot of plot. So it's kind of a weird. It's very, yeah, it's front loaded as far as the yeah. plot. Oh yeah, yeah, all the yeah. plots right up front, 
And then you end up figure, trying getting lost in all the smashing and trying to figure out how this got started. Right. Uh, but overall, it was still fun and enjoyable, so two thumbs up for this one. Oh, and it's been reprinted, if you want to read it. It's been reprinted in uh, Superman Archives Volume 2 and Superman Chronicles Volume 3. In fact, all the stories we've covered, or that we're going to cover this episode, were in those two volumes. So if we forget to say it later, <laughs> that's where you can find them. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman of the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast covering the adventures of Superman from 1970 to 1986. Join host Charlie Niemeyer at superbronze1970.libson.com. All right, so David's got the third story, so over to you, David. Yes. Um, once again, not given a pub title at publication, but later given the title Luthor's Incense Menace. Written, of course, by C. Gold, penciled by Schuster, and inked by Paul Cassidy. Does that match your credits as well? The Grand Comics Database credits Wayne Boring for the inks, but the rest ah. is, yeah. Well, possibly inked by Paul Cassidy, possibly Wayne Boring. <laughs> Um, the story begins as a wave of unemployment comes over Metropolis, and George Taylor sends Clark Kent out to investigate. As Clark goes about interviewing leading men of finance, he notices the strong odor of incense in the various offices. And when Clark asks, asks about the odor, one of the men, a Mr. Gregory, gets all shifty. As Clark is leaving Mr. Gregory's office, he uses his super hearing to snoop on a phone call Mr. Gregory makes, informing somebody that a reporter from the planet has been snooping around. Clark heads back to the paper and spots a bomber plane on its way to blow up the Daily Planet, so he does a quick change into Superman and stops the bombs in midair. Later, after Superman dumps the bombs into the river, Clark decides to pay Mr. Gregory another visit, suspecting that he may have, been ordered, he may have ordered the bomb strike. And once Clark gets back to the tycoon's office, Mr. Gregory warns Clark that he called the police because somebody was coming to kill him. And Clark is shocked as Mr. Gregory shoots himself on orders from somebody higher up just as the police arrive, which is essentially framing Clark for murder. Clark leaps out the window as the police enter the room and he doubles back so he re-enters as a simple reporter. And Clark is able to prove that Gregory killed himself and gets out of the predicament and phones the story into the Daily Planet offices. Clark begins to pay follow-up visits to the other men of finance and finds himself rejected from the offices of one Mr. Mosley. So Clark goes into an adjoining insurance office and slips out the window, sneaking into Mosley's office. Clark hides in a wardrobe as several thugs talk about how they are raking in profits as the rest of the country goes bankrupt. As one thug goes to hang his coat, they notice his feet, and he's discovered, which leads to a chase... And in the midst of the chase, Clark discovers a bust of Luthor, which is spilling the incense out of its mouth. Clark is taken into the custody of the businessmen, the businessmen's thugs, and is thrown down an elevator shaft. Out of sight, Clark is able to switch to Superman, and when the hoodlums come to retrieve Clark's, Clark Kent's corpse from the bottom of the shaft, they are surprised to find the Man of Steel. 
Superman knocks the thugs around and spies on Mosley himself, talking to the bust of Luthor. Shortly after the talk, Mosley fires up a gyroplane, or an autogyro, and Superman goes after him in pursuit. And when the plane fires on Superman, Superman snaps off one of the, the propeller blades, which sends the plane plummeting towards the ground. Apparently, Mosley is fine after the crash, and Superman trails him as he enters the cave, a cave, and comes to an iron door which requests a password. When Superman isn't able to give the password, a pit opens up which drops Superman into some sharp spikes, but the spikes bend against his skin. But a flood of acid then pours over Superman, doing no harm to the Man of Tomorrow. So finally able to break down the door, Superman enters the secret room and sees Mosley getting stock market advice from Luthor on a blue on a blue screen. Wow. Getting stock market advice from Luthor on a view screen. But Superman rushes into the scene and finds himself struck with electricity, which doesn't harm him, but it does manage to help him blow up the view screen. And the cave threatens to collapse, so Superman grabs Mosley and they escape the cavern. And Mosley, being an ungrateful little jerk, tricks Superman into an airtight vault with the promise of all the names of Luthor's victims, who are seemingly under the power of his hypnotic incense. Superman smashes out of the vault, learns the identities, and then disguises himself as Mosley to attend a meeting with Luthor and the victims. And Superman, in the middle of the meeting, is found out, and Luthor tries to escape in a hidden plane, but Superman brings the plane down into the water, seemingly bringing about the end of Luthor. And in the end, Clark publishes the story, which allows the victims to be cured of the hypnosis, and the world is forever safe from Luthor, who will never, ever return to Menace Metropolis again. And as David said before we started recording, incense. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> well, I like that. You know, you you actually said, "Wait, what did the incense do?" <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It it kind of turns out to be not at all important to the story. Yeah. But, all right. So my first note is that I, I seem to be talking about the splash pages a lot in this episode, but the story actually starts in the splash page this time. There's no introductory text or a random image and this is the first time we've seen that in several stories uh, but moving on to page two when <laughs> when I see Superman leaping into the air and saying they're going to blow up the Daily Planet not if I can help it my first thought is who stopped people from blowing up the Daily Planet before Superman showed up <laughs> and I know we're not supposed to think about such things but sometimes I just can't help it um, page three, we get the return of Officer Pat. Pat first appeared in Action Comics number 25, and I didn't think we'd see him again, but I, I really like these minor returning, re returning, recurring characters. I mean, even if we never see him again, I, I, it just helps to kind of build the world more than Clark being a stranger to everyone he meets. The problem I have on this page is that Clark running away makes no sense. Because he had reason to be there, and he was able to point out, without the police even questioning it, that the guy committed suicide. So, I don't understand why he ran away and then doubled back. I didn't think about that, but that's actually pretty good. <laughs> if he had been shot in front of Clark, I could understand it, but the guy committed suicide. It just didn't make any sense. Uh, page four, I got a chuckle out of the scene. Uh, at the top of the page here where Clark climbs out the window causing the receptionist to freak out. <laughs> it's it's one of those things that kind of reminds me more of the radio show than Siegel's writing to this point. 
like I said, there's been a lot of things that make me think Siegel was, I don't know if inspired is the right word, but there's just been a, a subtle shift in, in things since the radio show started. I can see that. I thought of The Adventures of Superman, the TV show. That too, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities between the the radio show and The Adventures of Superman television show. Oh, very much so. With, with you know, the similar uh, crew that worked on them, but... Page five, and I. This is something I thought of just when you were doing your synopsis. It occurs to me that if Luther wasn't always putting his face on things and making statues of himself, he might actually get away with things once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I chalk it up to ego. I don't know if that was Siegel's intention, but from the Silver Age forward, anyway, ego is a big part of Luther's character. Oh, very so much. I, I like thinking that that was there from the beginning. Page six. We see a panel where Clark switches to Superman, and, and we see we see him putting his belt on, which kind of struck me as odd. It's just not something you see very often, but I guess you'd have to put the belt on, too, when you're putting on your trunks. Um, my next note isn't until page – oh, page 9. Superman says that his costume is made from the cloth that he invented himself that is, quote, immune to the most powerful forces – so not only is this the first appearance of Superman's invulnerable costume, but it's also the first time in any medium that we've gotten information about where or how he got the costume. Because in the comics, newspapers, and radio, whenever we meet Superman, he's already wearing the costume. And they've just glossed over that detail in any flashbacks. So I thought that was very cool. Oh, very much. I didn't notice that either. And it, it also plays into his super intelligence that he was able to create a, a cloth that was immune to bullets and bombs and fire and acid and, and all this other stuff. So I like that too. <laughs> then we get to page 12 with super facial contortion. <laughs> yeah, it's super facial contortion. As much as I make fun of it though, and, and it, it is fun. I, I don't want it to be brought back today. But I, I, I oddly don't mind it in this era or, or the Silver Age. And then I like how on the next page, Luthor's just like, eh, I know who you are. And then Superman just punches him dead in the face. <laughs> uh, that's why you pay your money, because you want to see Superman punch things. Um, and But here we have the, the reappearance of Luthor with gray hair this time on this page. It's brown on the next page, but that's still different than the red hair he had in previous appearances. Or the no hair he'll have in future appearances. Right, right. But Luthor wasn't really needed at all in this story, was he? I mean, they mentioned him early in the story, so it's not like he came out of nowhere, but he's really only involved in the last page and a half. Uh, face-to-face, yeah. Yeah. And then we end with another, and that's the end of him... After all the times he said that about Luthor and the Ultra Humanite, you'd think he'd start investigating a little more. <laughs> yeah, double check. Find a body. Yeah. Did you have trouble figuring out exactly what the plot was? Yeah, maybe a little bit. Yeah, um, I understood that apparently we're we're attacking the financial system, but exactly how does Luthor gain? Well, I don't think it really says in the story. But if you go back to previous stories, if the financial system is ruined – because he tried this before to ruin the financial system, and then he was going to step in 
as like supreme master of the world or, or some such. Remember that? Maybe that was an ultra humanized story. I'm getting confused at this point. But anyway, if the if the stock market crashes, maybe he has a plan to step in and you know set himself up as as the person who rescues it. I could see that. Yeah. I don't know. It's a, pub- it, it, it's a public relations aspect. <laughs> right. It, it was an okay story, just not my favorite in the issue. And I think it was kind of a waste of Luthor since he really – he's really not too involved with the story. I mean he was ultimately responsible, but he really only appeared in the last page and a half. And I don't think he appears in the comics again for a year or so. So it's kind of unfortunate that he's going out on this note. Um, but I enjoyed the art in this one a little more. It had less of the plain backgrounds and, and a lot of embellishments like the little motion lines and, and that kind of thing. And I noticed they were really showing off Superman's powers in this uh, this story because every significant ability that he has is mentioned at some point. We had super hearing, telescopic vision, pseudo-flight, basically – X-ray vision, invulnerability, strength, photographic memory got referenced again, and then the superficial contortion, uh, super speed, and the invulnerable costume. So it, it was really a showcase for his powers. Yeah, and it, it felt like – it really felt like a Silver Age story. In some ways, yeah. Or sort of a maybe a hybrid I guess would be the best explanation. Right. Yeah, because you you definitely got some of the more Silver Age, well, not maybe not the power levels, but the constant reference to you know super ventriloquism or something along. A new power is invented every issue. Right. It doesn't mean I don't mean that as a bad thing at all because the Silver Age was fun, and I thought this story was pretty fun for the most part. Yeah. Did you have any page by page notes? Uh, not a ton of them. Uh, the I had kind of the note you mentioned about him putting on the belt. Um. Why on page is this page two? He dumps the bombs in the river. Who would think that? Why can't he just take it to a nearby army base or something? <laughs> Let me get back over there. Was it going to explode? They, you know, they would have exploded if they hit. Hmm. But he caught them all, and then it says later after dumping the bombs into the river. I thought he had super <laughs> intelligence because. <laughs> well, Aquaman's not around at this time to complain about it. So true. Yeah. And I kind of had the same kind of note. Why did Clark leave if he can just point out, oh, no, he shot himself? Yeah, it, it made no sense at all. Well, the gun's still in uh, still in Mr. Gregory's hand, assumptively, or nearby. Right. I mean, I know we didn't have CSI at this time, but it was... <laughs> Unless it was just to get the police officer, because he says... No, no, no. He doesn't go get the police officer. He leaps out of the building and then comes back, and the police are already there. Yeah, because they were coming in the door as he leaps out of the building. Yeah. Yeah, it makes no sense why he would run. No. But Unless here's it was wh- just to allay any suspicion at all that he uh, was there. Maybe better safe than sorry, because yeah. maybe if they thought he was there, they would have searched him. Yeah. Okay. And he'd have to explain the costume under his shirt, yeah. Yeah, I didn't okay. think about it. Um, but here's what doesn't make sense. Page five. Who decides it's a good idea to put a replica of Luthor in, in their office, especially when it's spouting incense. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the part that isn't explained is how Luthor got these into the offices in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, it makes no sense at all. 
no, <laughs> but it's fun, so I'm okay with it. Um, yeah, I, I like sort of the gauntlet that he goes through in the cave. It does remind me a little bit of Superman in the movie, mm-hmm. the extended cut when he goes through the, the guns and the fire. And I just think it's hilarious that all the spikes bend. The, his, his power level is clearly rising. Uh-huh. Definitely, yeah. Because he just shrugs off acid and then uses the vat to open the door. Yeah, when he's in the spikes, he's just sitting there. He's like, odd, I'm actually comfortable. I got to <laughs> kick out of that too. Yeah, this was a fun story overall. I did, I, you know, once I got halfway through it, I'm like, I don't need to think too much about it. I just need to have fun. And I kind of agree with you that Luthor went out with a whimper. But they didn't know the character that he would become and how important. No, no way, no way, no. Um, sometimes you're better off not thinking too much about the stories, though. Yeah. You know. This is this is a good one just to have fun. Yeah. And I agree with you. The art was very streamlined. It was, a lot, it was more crisp than the one we saw the last couple of stories, really. Because the line work is a little bit more fine, and, and you mentioned the details. I just... I really enjoyed it. He's just – Superman's not as beefy as he was. He's not as stocky. Mm-hmm. And that That's, was something. Yeah, Schuster's Superman wasn't quite as – I mean he was athletic, but he wasn't completely beefy. You know what yeah. I'm talking – yeah. Other artists kind of brought that in later mm-hmm. uh, like we've seen. But, but yeah, good story. Excellent. Hey, kids, comics! Hey, Michael! Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium. Watch our podcast. Well, you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Uh, no, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snap it. It's short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast's about, though, is it? We read comics. We read comics. That's true. It's good. Liking it. Liking this pitch. Carry on. Right. We talk about comics. We do. We talk about comics. We read comics, and then we talk about them, because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent. Keep going. And then we sing. Badly. Yes. Well, badly is purely subjective, but how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Alright, so our final story was, again, untitled at publication, but later called The Wonder Drug Racket. It was written by Jay Siegel with art by Paul Cassidy. Clark Kent goes to interview a man named Morton Craig, who has recently been arrested for grand larceny. Craig says he's too tired to talk, but asks Clark to summon a Dr. Bren. When Bren shows up, he explains that Craig is anemic and that he just needs an an injection and asks that they be left alone. After the injection, Craig revives and demands that Bren get him released from jail or he'll talk. Clark overhears their conversation with his superhearing and soon sees Bren leave looking rather worried. As Superman, he follows Bren to the office of a racketeer named Carlin. Bren tells Carlin about the goings-on at the prison and that Craig has threatened to talk. In response, Carlin orders one of his goons to go kill Craig. As the goon's car leaves, Superman leaps down from the building and shoves the car off the road into a nearby traffic light, 
right in front of a cop who promptly puts the goons under arrest. Superman then follows Carlin to the laboratory of a Professor Carl Grinstead. As Superman tries to evade the security guard, inside, Carlin congratulates the professor on the paraboline vaccine he discovered, saying it's doing a great good for mankind. The professor says a lot of the credit also belongs to Carlin, as he is the one funding it. Outside, Superman sees Nick Blake, Carlin's biggest rival, approach the building and aim a gun intending to kill Carlin. Superman leaps forward, blocking the bullet, and begins wrestling with the gangster before they both crash through the skylight and into the laboratory. The fall knocks Blake out, but Carlin orders his men to do away with Superman. Bren protests, but after locking the professor in the cellar, they coerce Superman into a car and take him to a deserted bridge. Superman plays it cool and doesn't say a word as the thugs begin shooting him, and soon Superman just decides to play along and take a tumble off the bridge pretending to be dead because, once again, there's nothing more pressing going on. Superman waits on the river bottom for the thugs to leave, and then follows one of them, soon hitching a ride by again grabbing the hold of the undercarriage of the car, much like he did in the first story we looked at, oddly enough. The car soon arrives at the local factory, and the thugs call back to Carlin to report that the job is done. But after hanging up, they're surprised to find Superman standing right in front of them. Superman leaps over the very surprised thugs, and one of the factory workers tries dumping a bucket of boiling fluid on him. But Superman just shatters the bucket, completely unaffected by the fluid. Assuming Carlin must be using the factory for some nefarious purpose, Superman sets about tearing the equipment apart, reducing it to so much junk. And after shrugging off more gunfire and twisting the guns into pretzels, Superman crashes through the wall and heads back to the lab to release the professor. But he stops short when he hears Carlin and Grinstead talking in the cellar. Carlin explains he's been using the paraboline drug not to help people, but to coerce people like Bran and Craig into doing his bidding. And now that he's creating the drug in his factory, he has no more use for the professor. But before he can follow through on his threat, gunshots ring out in the next room, because apparently Blake's men have come to rescue him. In the next instant, both gangs of thugs are fighting but Superman soon tears through the wall and easily does away with, with both gangs. Back in the lab, Grinstead, distraught over the use of his drug, mixes together some chemicals, resulting in a huge explosion. Superman rushes the professor to the hospital, but it's too late. Grinstead is dead. Superman tells the doctor to put the professor in an artificial fever machine and wait for his return. Superman soon returns with Dr. Bran and a dose of the paraboline virus, or vaccine. One injection later, and the professor begins to revive, cured by his own drug. With the professor on his way back to health, that only leaves one task for Superman, rounding up Carlin. Superman arrives back at the laboratory just as Carlin is leaving, and after some mid-air, high-altitude Superman-style convincing, Carlin agrees to make a full confession. A few days later, Clark Kent and Lois Lane visit the professor in the hospital, and he tells them he's sorry he ever invented such a drug that could be used for evil. But the reporters say he has no reason to feel sorry, because in the right hands, it's a godsend to those who are suffering. And that's the end of the story, but I can't wait for the sequel showing how the world has changed since now there's a drug that can bring people back from the dead. (laughs) (sighs) A drug that will never be referenced again. Right. Um, <laughs> this story felt way too much like the last one we just did. 
Yeah, a lot like the last one. <laughs> yeah. But not but, as good. No. The art was surprisingly good, though. And maybe that's just kind of the reprint quality of the color. and Because yeah. uh, the colors are the ones that, that – the lines are still sharp, but the colors really draw my eye in a lot more. Right. But the, yeah, my biggest note was I just read this. <laughs> and of course you, you already made the point that, yeah, there's a drug out there that brings people back from the dead. Yeah. And, you know, I do think it's funny that when, when Carlin has his hat on, he looks like Dick Tracy. <laughs> well, I don't know if that was maybe intentional, uh, but – I doubt it was intentional, but it's it's funny. It's a, it's <laughs> the yellow coat too, I think. Yeah. But yeah, not – I just I – wouldn't, I wouldn't say I completely checked out. I just didn't have a lot to work with. You know, it's just like yeah. I just read this. How many more notes can I repeat? Like you said, sometimes you go to the well and sometimes the well's dry. Yeah. <laughs> As for my page by page, I, I really didn't have too many either. Uh, page five, Superman stops Blake from shooting Carlin and then says something to the effect of that he can't let someone die no matter how much they deserve it. Apparently he's forgotten about all the times in the past when he, you know, wantonly killed people or left them to die so when he <laughs> bloody well could have saved them. Uh, but then on page eight um, – Superman leaps over the thugs, and, and one of them says, The guy can fly! And technically, Superman's not flying in the comics yet, but especially since he is flying on the radio show, we're, we're very much in a, a gray area. I mean, it, Superman's been doing all these aerial maneuvers that couldn't possibly be done by simply leaping, but officially he, he's not flying here in the printed mediums yet. Uh, but in the bottom panel... When the guy dumps the boiling fluid on Superman, in the original issue, it was left white with like highlights of gray so that it looks like steam from from a boiling fluid. But in the Chronicles reprint, and, and maybe the Archives edition too, I don't have it, but they, they've colored it bright purple. So it kind of looks like he's dumping you know cotton candy or, or taffy on him, which is just a very bizarre coloring choice. I don't understand why they would color it like that. Could be the parasite he's pouring on him. <laughs> okay, it's the parasite. That's, I'm going with that, man. It's the parasite. First, first appearance of the Golden Age parasite. There you go. But that's all I had as far as page by page. Um, I just wasn't real crazy about this story. Like you said, it's a lot like the last one, and just not as good. Uh, we're, we're introduced to this guy at the beginning of the issue, Morton Craig, and right off, I'm not at all invested in the story because we're not given any information about who this guy is. Just just that he's in jail for grand larceny. But then we switch right away to the doctor, which leads us to Carlin. And we never see Craig again. I mean, he's mentioned towards the end, but we don't actually see him. And the doctor, we don't see him again till the very end either. So it just seems like Superman spends an awful lot of time in this story following people around. I mean, we're a good ways into the story before anything happens that actually really involves Superman. So, yeah, he was basically just randomly running into thugs. Like, you know what it felt like? It felt like uh, the old NES Superman game, where he would just I never you, played it. It was terrible. <laughs> not not Superman sixty four terrible, but pretty bad. But you spent a lot of time as Clark Kent jumping on thugs or jumping over them and fighting them. <laughs> As they randomly, of course, walk down the street. It wasn't 
bad structurally. I mean, it made sense. There was a villain. There weren't any of these random tangents that had nothing to do with the story. Well, I guess the stuff with the rival gang was completely unnecessary. But weird science and and life-giving drugs aside, it wasn't bad as far as that goes. It just... It just felt dull, and it really didn't hold my interest, probably because we just read the story 13 pages earlier. But Pretty, it, yeah, easily. But it was kind of this, you know, it was kind of the same way when Billy Hogan was on the show we, with Superman number four. The fourth story in the book was very similar to what we'd seen earlier in the issue. So <laughs> I don't know if Siegel's writing these in order uh, that they were published. Or if he is, maybe he just ran out of ideas by the time he got to the fourth story. But I don't know. I I just hope it's not a trend that continues. I wonder if this would have – you know, if you hadn't just read that story, if it was in a different issue of Superman, if it would have been a better read. This story, you mean? If we did – Yeah, because I know they – you know, they they just pumped out stories not necessarily knowing where they're going to end up. And I wonder if this had been, say, in an issue of action – if this would have been, you know, if my reaction would have been different if I just read a completely different story before that. I think mine might have been. I wouldn't have, the the similarities wouldn't have been so noticeable. Yeah. They were really glaring in this yeah. in, in this sequence. But I think the the criticism that, you know, it we're not invested at the beginning of the story and then it's, it's a ways before we get to anything really involving Superman, I think that that's still valid. Yeah. But yeah, I think maybe if it would have been somewhere else, maybe a little more enjoyment would have been had. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Did you have any other comments on this one? No, I pretty much agree with everything you said, so. All right. Well, other features in the book, we had a beautiful frontispiece by Wayne Boring with a great image of Superman in the center by a banner that reads, Superman, world's greatest adventure character. And surrounding him are images of Superman doing various feats like stopping a train and throwing a car and shrugging off cannon fire. Um, unlike the last couple frontispieces, these are original images rather than piecemealed from previous stories. It's really a, a fantastic page, and I may actually stick this one in the show notes. I was going to say, yeah, I, this could be a, very much a good pinup. Yes. But I mean, well, most of these are, but this one is above average from the ones I've seen so far. Yeah, and it, it really annoys me that they didn't put these in the Chronicles volumes. Oh. <laughs> I think it was you that told me they are in the archives. They are in the archives, yeah. Okay, yeah, but they're not in the Chronicles, which which annoys me because I don't have the archives. I have the Chronicles, but... I have a, a few volumes of the archives. They're just so expensive to try to track down where the Chronicles are relatively, you know, adequately priced. Yeah, 18 bucks, well, no, 15 bucks cover. So, yep. uh, but um, also of note on on this frontispiece is that the S on Superman's cape is a yellow S on a blue field with a yellow border, similar to how we saw it inside the issue. Uh, but we also have a one-page super strength rules for summer living that tells you how to stay healthy by getting plenty of rest and eating good food and exercising. That's kind of cool because I think they that's an indication that they realize the the influence that Superman has so they're putting these you know these messages in there a little bit more prevalently. Yeah, they've been having I think they've had one in each issue of Superman so far. Not in action that I can remember, but yeah, I don't think in action that I can remember. But but yeah, it's a good point that, that yeah, they they are definitely recognizing the 
the influence that Superman has over the kids. And I don't know who drew this. I'll have to look that up. I don't know who. It almost looks like Siegel, but it's a little Schuster. off. Or Schuster, yeah, sorry. <laughs> let me let me look up on the Grand Comics database real quick and see if they... Grand Comics database credits Dennis Neville. Or Neville. I, I, I've been going back and forth on how I pronounce that. Um, what else did he draw? I mean, what is he known for anything? Yeah, he did some Superman work earlier. Uh, okay. In the newspapers and in the comics, there were some stories. Page features an inset picture of Superman illustrated by Joe Schuster, plus an illustrated plug for Joe at Books on physical strength at the bottom. So the the uh, the Superman there in the corner is Schuster, obviously, but then the the, uh, the kids with their mom and the cow. I love how he's. I didn't notice that he's just standing there by the cow with his mom, just hanging out. Yeah. I want you to meet one of my best pals. This is Bessie, a poorly drawn cow. <laughs> She's my pal too. Wow. That's a that's okay. a radio sitcom ready to happen. <laughs> anyway, we've also got the big six ad that we've seen before, as well as a half page ad for the Superman radio show. And there's a full page ad for Action Comics, a half page ad for Batman's self titled book, which just launched. And a half-page ad for a brand new book. For Thrills and Adventure, don't miss the first issue of All-Star Comics. And we will talk more about that in another couple episodes when I talk about the other issues that came out around this time, which I think will be in episode 60 when I look at Action Comics number 26. But last but not least, we've got our 11th Superman of America page. It talks quite a bit about how Superman's popularity and club membership are growing by leaps and bounds. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there is one part that I found kind of interesting, and that's where it says, Recently, a group of midshipmen from the United States Naval Academy at Annapolis joined the Superman of America Club in a body. A similar group from the United States Military Academy at West Point. And if that wasn't enough, a group also joined from the United States Coast Guard Academy. It's plain to see that the armed forces in the nation see eye-to-eye with the principles of strength, courage, and justice. And to top that, the Superman emblem will be used as the official insignia on all planes of the 33rd Bombardment Squadron of the United States Army stationed at Patterson Field, Ohio. I tried to find a picture of one of these planes, but I didn't have any luck. So if anybody out there has one or or knows where to find one, email me because I'd really love to see one of those bombers. Yeah, I, I, I go ahead and kick one over my way too. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, but then there's also information on how to join the club. Like always, no secret message this time, as those only appear in Action Comics. But that's it for Superman number five. <laughs> one of them, if I can remember what the issue number is. Yeah. So you got any more comments on this particular no, this, issue? This- um, one thing, and I'm trying to find the page. Sorry, it's a little bit harder with a CBR. Mm-hmm. Um, it shows the big six. Yes, and it's not the big six you would think completely. I mean, you do have Superman, Batman, the Flash, which would be one of the one one of the three that would come to mind. But then you have the Sandman, the Wesley Dodd Sandman, mm-hmm. the Spectre, and Ultraman. Yes, not that Ultraman though. <laughs> I actually no. had to look that one up. Completely different concept. So it's kind of interesting as a point of reference to say, okay, the DC universe as we know it, we think of the big three as Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. Right. 
and it wasn't always that way. No, because at this point, I'm trying to find the ad. At this point, Wonder Woman is still a ways away from debuting. And really, the six on there are the biggest six characters from DC at this point. Ultraman will eventually go away and be replaced by Green Lantern, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, But right now, these are the the big six. But yeah, you're right. It's kind of weird thinking that, you know, the Sandman (laughs) was... And no offense to the Sandman. I love the Sandman, but he's not... You know, post nineteen forty-five, he's not really considered a, a top-tier character. So, sure. Oh, and just to let you know, Green Lantern first appeared in All American Comics number sixteen. There you go. On May thirtieth, two thousand eleven, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke. In half. That's not true. That's impossible. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames. Flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, heaving. But then the books actually hit, and opinions. He likes it. He likes it. Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster. Now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures falling from the sky, speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The new 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libson.com. Well, David, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I, I really do appreciate it, especially given that it was such short notice. Why don't oh, you? That was, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just say it's my pleasure. I, I was glad you asked. Why don't you remind the folks one more time where they can find your various shows and anything else you've got online? Uh, yes, um, you can find new uh, the new Fifty Two Adventures of Superman at new fifty two superman dot com. It comes out on the first of every month. Well, technically, right now we're in the first and the fifteenth. <laughs> Because apparently we talk a lot about action comics and then uh, the other stuff. So we're splitting those episodes up. Um, 
Pad Smash and Incredible Hulk podcast. You can find it at IncredibleHulkHomepage.com. And I'm working on expanding that site. Uh, towards the beginning of February, you'll start seeing some new stuff pop up on there. Uh, Superman in the Bronze Age is bi-weekly. You can find that at SupermanInTheBronzeAge.blogsabot.com. And then, of course, Green Lantern's Light, which will theoretically have a new episode out by the time this episode – no, the episode will be out. I was thinking – that it would be the next episode that would be out by then. But you can, of course, find that every month, every the 22nd of every month at GreenLanternsLight.com. Next episode, I'll be rejoined by Charlie Niemeyer for a look at the seventh storyline from the Superman radio serial, which finds Clark Kent investigating a mystery about some missing airplanes. Be sure to stop by the website at GreatCrypton.com, where you'll find show notes for this in all episodes, as well as links to David's sites, or shows, excuse me, the site will also give you the link to the Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as the RSS feed and the iTunes link, all of which can be used to alert you when there's new episodes out. If you have comments or feedback, you can contact me via Facebook and Twitter, or feel free to email me at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. Posts about new episodes of the show also appear at the Superman homepage. And the Thrilling Adventures of Superman is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, home to many great Superman-related podcasts, including the two that David are, is a part of. So please remember to check out both sites. And last but not least, I too invite you to check out my other show, Green Lantern's Light, where you can hear David and I, along with Jeffrey Taylor, talk all about the guy with the ring. And you'll find that at GreenLanternsLight.com. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. David, thank you again for coming on. And we will talk to you later. Goodbye. incense who knew (laughs) (laughs) i never thought of incense as a threat until today it's a very dangerous threat when you what they do with it (laughs) he uh oh yeah use it it to mind control people that's right yeah (laughs) the the plot didn't make so much sense when i got through it yeah that's yeah no that and slot machines are apparently scary (laughs) 